Lone Star Gun Talk is a Lone Star Gun Rights production. Original music and hosted by Derek Wills. Copyright Lone Star Gun Rights 2019. Podcast. This is Lone Star Gun Talk, the official podcast of Lone Star Gun Rights, and I am your humble host, as always, Derek Wills. Thank you so much for joining me today. We have a special guest with us, and that is uh, Dwayne Stovall. Dwayne is has been courteous enough to give us some of his uh, invaluable time uh, to join us today and talk a little bit about the his run against John Cornyn uh, for U.S. Senate. Dwayne, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being here, sir. Hey, it's my pleasure. Uh, so in case somebody doesn't know, um, tell us a little bit about who you are, uh, your background, uh, and why you're running for U.S. Senate. Um, wow, how much time you got? Uh, <laughs> I got all the time in the world for you, my friend. Okay, well, uh, simply put, I'm just an every Texan. Um, I'm 54 years old, been married nearly 30 years, going on 29 years. I've got three children, uh, been in business for almost 25 years, but we own a business called Diamond K Equipment. We do a lot of site work and dirt work with it. We built bridges for the highway department for almost 15 years for that company and got out of building bridges after stimulus, uh, the stimulus years, 2008, nine and 10, for those that are old enough to remember that, that was a really wonderful period in governmental involvement. Um, we started another company back in 2011 called Liberty Testing. We do compliance work on the pipelines here in Texas. And um, the course of me getting to the point in my life where I would run for U.S. Senate started about 15 years ago. For those that don't know, I ran for U.S. Senate in 2014. Uh, I pulled about uh, almost 11% of the primary on just $70,000 which to me is just a regular every Texan. Uh, I woke up the day after the primary thinking that was just a loss, but apparently that was a bit of a should never happen in a state as large as Texas to pull double digits in a Republican primary was kind of unheard of for an absolute no-name. One rang for two weeks solid after that primary, uh, asking me who I was and what I brought to the table, and, and uh, I was at at least contrary enough not to offer up a lot of information to the people they called afterwards. Some of them, it, it was really interesting, broad range of people, people who were really well-connected, some big ca- uh, candidates, uh, campaign managers for some big national candidates, and then uh, all the way down to like think tanks in Washington, D.C. that monitored the race and just wanted to know something about me. It was a really uh, kind of an interesting science to, to look at. Um, my personal pathway to getting in that race started about 15 years ago when I started reading the source documents to to what created the Constitution, what the states agreed to originally in the uh, uh, revolutionary period. Now, I, yeah, I have to understand, I'm, I'm kind of studying this as a guy who's man whose family's been in Texas almost 200 years. And we, we here in Texas know that we have a very distinct history of our own revolution, our own 
constitutional creation, our own governmental creation, and, and that period of um, the Republic, which is a standalone kind of identity that I'm, I'm very concerned about losing. Uh, that being said, my own self-study into the origins of the, of the United States led me very quickly to realize that what we live under today is almost, it has almost no connection to or, or reflects in almost no way the origins of the Constitution. Right. The, the idea that uh, this new general government was going to have powers that Madison called few and defined and that the states who created the new government, uh, this general government, would retain all those powers that were, as he called them, uh, numerous and indefinite. Well, that's kind of flipped on its head. I don't think anybody could argue that it exists that way. Right now, we have ultimate authority over every aspect of our lives in the hands of a few hundred people, uh, a thousand miles of, away from Texans in a, a little town to our east that we're never going to know and can't really influence. Right. So it, when I got, when the light came on, um, you know the old adage, ignorance is bliss. I do. Uh, that's absolutely true, and there are days that I wish I had never opened the first document. and uh, But once you start getting the truth, you can't let go of it. Right. No, I, and, I, and, I sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Dwayne. I, I'm good. right there with you. I've, uh, uh, I'm somewhat of a history junkie myself. I have been uh, just absolutely enthralled with uh, knowing everything and everything else that I can learn. Uh, you know, you start... It, to call it a rabbit hole is is kind of an <laughs> understatement. Uh, it's a severe understatement, right? Especially whenever you get into things that uh, most his, most people who just go through the regular history courses don't ever get into, like uh, the ratification of the Fourteenth Amendment, uh, the push for the you know the progressive agenda with the Seventeenth, Eighteenth, Sixteenth, Seventeenth, and Eighteenth Amendments, the whole history behind the creation of the Federal Reserve, the first and second banks of the United States, all of that. All of that, that's upper level. Yeah. We, we are six generations into a society that doesn't have the most basic understanding of the structure of the government. We have been taught for a century, and you talk about progressivism, anybody that's listening to this needs to understand that Really what we're dealing with today are the results of a century of progressivism. That's, that's all we're dealing with. And if you don't think the right hasn't been impacted by progressive ideology, you're not paying attention. Right. Um, yeah. So, so when you get you strip it all away, you get down to guys like me. I'm just a layman. When you realize that we've been taught, our children are being taught, our parents were taught, our grandparents were taught these most stupid statements like, like this is a, a government of three co-equal branches. They were never co-equal branches, but we regurgitate that every day in every school across the United States. Absolutely. Pro- uh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was I was going to say that uh, one of the things that I was taught in my high school civics classes was that the purpose of the Supreme Court is to uh, to interpret the Constitution and interpret yes. law. That's nowhere in Article Three whatsoever. No. Uh, no, judicial review. Yeah, the two most dangerous um, misunderstandings that are pervasive throughout education that are that are perpetuated throughout education in the united states is one that somehow they're all co-equal branches the other one is that the supreme court of the united states is somehow superior to 
It's the final arbiter of everything all the time, everywhere across the entire United States. And those two items are the drivers of everything. They're the drivers of why we have so much elevated vitriol and, and uh, animosity. They're the drivers of why everyone has homogenized themselves into this single identity, which is completely insane. Mm -hmm. that you have 330 million people across 50 sovereign states, and somehow we're supposed to all share the same identity. It's it's insane. Well, that's, that's the only way I can describe it. It's, that's it's another thing. State sovereignty is is uh, has gone the way of the dodo, uh, particularly. Um, it, I, I want to say probably the final nail that really nailed it down for killing states' authority. Uh, states don't have rights; they have authority. Uh, is the Seventeenth Amendment and the popular election of senators. Um, oh sure, sure. That that's definitely the Seventeenth Amendment. Um, the people that listen to your show may may be clear on that. That's the amendment that removed a state legislature's power to choose their own representation in the Senate for the state and made them popularly elected just like a member of the House. Right. And, and they don't teach you this in school. They didn't teach me this. They don't teach us in general. They still teach that we've got what, what the framers called a bicameral system, that you have a House that represents the people. That's why there's so many more members. And you have a Senate that supposedly represents the states. That's why it's fixed membership, two per state regardless. Delaware has the same representation as a state the size of Texas. But what happened with the 17th Amendment that they won't teach you is those two uh, chambers, the bicameral system went away. It basically became one big body of 535-member uh, parliament. Right, and they and they the only difference between them is varying terms. They're all elected by popular vote. They all spend money from people we don't know on marketing campaigns to tell us they're just like us every few years, and they they corner the market on all the rules and regulations for how you raise money and how you campaign and how you keep your office. And of course, they're skewed to their favor, and they have all the control mechanisms in their favor. That's that's why uh, I saw an article this morning talking about how they we have a re-election rate of around 97% of of the Congress, which is which is completely uh, the opposite of the what 13 to 14% approval rating they'll get on average. Right. So. It, you know, my guy's okay because I've seen pictures of him with a cowboy hat standing next to somebody else's horse, and everybody else is bad. So I'm going to elect my guy back. Well, no, your guy's just as bad as everybody else. You know, and, uh, I'm sorry, Dwayne. I really, I really, I, I'm sorry to keep cutting you off. I really don't mean to. No, jump uh, in anytime. Um, what, what's really interesting is that the way that the government was originally structured with the House being elected by districts comprised of a set population of the people in each state, uh, and then the Senate being appointed by the state legislatures, it is so much easier to replace an incumbent whenever he only has to account to 30, 40,000, 50,000 people. When you're talking about a state <laughs> yeah. like Texas, you know, trying to replace somebody that is a st elected statewide in a, in a state with a population of 25 million, like Texas, it is incredibly hard to do because, you know, not everybody is up to date on what, what that person's doing. The smaller the group of people 
responsible for electing that person, the easier it is to vote them out if they if they mess up, if they don't hold to their core values. And that's why the legislatures and uh, that's one of the reasons why the legislature was supposed to be in charge of who goes to the Senate. Also, because a state's interest is different from the interests of the people at large. Well, to go to go off into the weeds a little bit about that, you're, there's a couple there's a numerous little items you can get into. Um uh, for those of us like myself, before I got into the structure of the government and the history of how we got here, uh, I was a big believer in the old adage, the old notion, and it's a lie, by the way, but there's an old notion that the people are the term limits. We are the term limits. Well, that's not true. It can't be true these days. It's, it's literally an impossibility. And the reason is scale. And that's everything that you're talking about. Most people don't get into the weeds, so they don't realize or don't have knowledge of. When the framers met in, uh, in Philadelphia, uh, they, of course, they, everybody, looked, they're taught that in school, too, that somehow the framers got together in Philadelphia and this great divinely inspired work came out of it with, oh, you know, the sun's beaming and it's all wonderful. And, and this was, you know, this great moment of liberty well, that wasn't it at all. They actually got together. A few of them decided to do things they weren't given the authority to do. They went in the chamber. They closed the doors. They locked out the media. They took a vow of silence. And uh, some of the members said, uh, yeah, we didn't get the authority to do this. Uh, we're going home. And they did. Yeah. And it's, uh, So you got this chamber full of people, and they talked George Washington into coming. They made him the chair. Now, back to what you were saying. They're in this meeting which from, by all accounts, you could say it had a bit of a nefarious start. Yes. This is not a, it was nothing, nothing grandiose about it. They were, they were there with intentions to do things that they didn't have the power to do. So they get there, they make George Washington the chair. He says almost nothing the whole time they're in Philadelphia. But when it comes to that ratio you're talking about, I don't, I don't remember if it's uh, Section 2 or where it brings up the representation ratio is going to be around 30,000 citizens to the – to the member of Congress. Well, he spoke about that and he said he wanted a lower number, but they labored over it and they came up with this number of 30,000. To your point, the entire purpose of that ratio had to do with the people being the term limits, yeah. for lack of better words. If you lived in a community of about 30,000 people, there's an extremely high likelihood you would know the person you were voting for personally. Absolutely. There was a, an exponentially higher likelihood that if you didn't know them, at least you would know someone that knew who they were, and you'd have some kind of context of character. Somebody would know something about their their kids, their wife, their spouse, their parents, where they went to school, where they went to church, you'd see them at the grocery store, how, the ethics of their personal character. You'd have all those items before you made a decision about them. Plus, if they were to behave corrupt, uh, corruptly in your community, you would know about it really quick, and you'd remove them quickly. Absolutely. Well, fast forward to today, we're dealing with the progressive era. When the, the, the sitting Congress locked themselves into 435 members. Now, today we've got nearly 800,000 of us to a member of Congress. And there is there is literally no possible, no human way that you can know. Or First off, there's no way that one person can represent the best interests of 800,000 individuals. No. Second thing is, there's no way 800,000 individuals can know the personal character of an individual 
in that grouping. There's no way. And, and compound that with the fact that we elect this person we don't know, mm-hmm. and, we, and they go 1,500 miles to our east, and we don't know who they break bread with. We don't know who buys them lunch. We don't know who they are influenced by, but we're pretty damn sure it's not us. Right. So this scale issue affects everything in our lives all the way up and down the, the uh, line. There is no way around it. Right. Now yeah, I, I my dog at home. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I, you know, they've, they've always been good until I have a, uh, um, until I have That's a show okay. whenever it's whenever there's a lot of people watching. Uh, <laughs> so I, I have a question here from uh, Gary and Beverly Malone. They're watching uh, on Facebook and um, they want to know, uh, is Mr. Stovall another one that tells us one thing and then does another? How can you trust any politician? You can't. You can't trust anybody that steps up here. Right. All, all, I, can, all I can tell you is I don't yeah. need any friends. I don't need any friends. I, I need more friends. I got plenty of friends. I don't need anybody outside the state of Texas to court me. Right. Uh, I have a deep, deep historical knowledge of the proper role of U.S. Senator, which is the only reason I run for this office. There are mechanisms it can do to protect the best interests of Texas that no other office can do. Right. Um, in a broad way, and it has a lot to do with messaging and discourse, what you can bring to the table. Hey, other than that. Really, you just have to, to to look at the consistency of what I brought to the table for the last six or seven years. Mm-hmm. There's there's no variation. There's no flipping around. I'm pretty straightforward about everything. Some people get very upset because I don't give them the answer they want. But right. really, I'm just I'm more interested in finding Texans who are just basically over it. I want Texans who are ready for a much more aggressive approach to divesting power away from that federal. I don't, I don't want people here. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. And I've been, I've been sharing this for the last couple of weeks because uh, it just kind of came over me in Lano. I was talking about 150 of my fellow Texans and I, I mentioned to them I, personally, I've, I've gotten to a point where I'm over a lot of things. And one of the things I'm over are candidates who get up in front of me and my fellow Texans and say, you know, uh, I've been thinking about this a really long time and I've been praying about it. And I've talked to my spouse and I've talked to my kids. You know, I've been asking God for guidance and, and uh, it's been weighing on me. It's really weighing on me. And I feel like it's, it's on my heart and I'm called to serve. Mm-hmm. And, people, and people applaud. Well, I'm at a point now with my understanding of this office and Congress and the relationship between the states and the federal and how it's supposed to operate. Now, that doesn't get it for me at all. When somebody does that and they kind of drop that, well, you know, I'm afraid about it and it's all good. I just want to, I want to do my duty. I raise my hand and I say, hey, that's wonderful. Now, what does that even mean? What yeah. does that mean? You're called to serve. Serve how? Serve who? What What are you going to do? What's your... What's your modus operandi? What's your agenda? And if you have an agenda, share it with us and, and share how, what mechanism you're going to use to get that accomplished. And it, if you're just saying you're one of those guys that's more conservative than the other guy, I don't need you. What questions are you going to answer that I don't already have the answer to? So if you think you're just going to go there and because you're such a good person and you're so smart, you're going to 
grab that broken system and you're going to manipulate it in a better way. I don't need you. So what are your uh, let's let's say that um instead of running for US Senate, let's say you're running for Emperor of the United States. Uh, you have complete unchecked power to do literally anything you want to shape the fabric of our country from what it is right now to your ideal America. Uh, that I know that's really? that, that's that's not that's not a question that you're typically asked. But what would you what would Dwayne Stovall's ideal America look like? It would look like a fifty member. Uh military leadership role with 50 different branches and it would be a 50 member trade commission with members from every state and the federal government wouldn't even exist wow that's uh that's pretty bold um so I'm sorry no, no. That, that government that government is so beyond its capacity as a constitutionally limited government we live today you asked me a question to kind of give a broad, never going to happen question. I'm right. going to tell you something that's a factual statement. That constitution doesn't exist anymore. Absolutely. We live in the United States, singular, of America. Get that through. Everybody that ever hears this, you live in the United States of America. When you say your country, you're referring to the entire union. When you say us, you're referring to people in Connecticut with you. You live, we live, me and my fellow Texans live. In the county of Texas. And we've got people that live over in the county of California and the people up in the county of New York. And we are so down this progressive rat hole that of identity, of collective identity, that somehow when we get up in the morning and the people over in the county of New York are doing something we don't like, we just point over to our overlords over in D.C. and go, hey, get over there and do something with them. And... Mm -hmm. This is all adverse, all polar opposite uh, to what was the founding was and the idea that we would have this supposedly limited general government that would kind of have a little bit of authority over uh, foreign trade and have a, a lot more ability to uh, protect our interests militarily and have a few ideas about monetary aspects over the states as far as commerce, minimal commerce and, and uh, minimal regulatory means like bankruptcies and things. But other than that, it's not supposed to be there. If the federal government operated properly, we wouldn't even know it existed. Mm -hmm. No, I know. It'd be, like, it'd be like air. You'd only know it existed if you needed it. It wasn't there. Right. That's, that's very uh, reminiscent of what Rand Paul said during the presidential debates. He said, I want the federal government so small I can barely see it, which I think is probably – one of the best quotes I heard during that entire campaign season. Um, now, you're running for uh, U.S. Senate against John Cornyn, who has been in a, a thorn in the side of Texas, uh, and tech, a lot of Texans don't even know it. Um, what is Most. yeah? What would Senator Stovall do differently uh, than Senator Cornyn. Obviously, there's going to be a, a big difference, but what would what would be some of the very noticeable things that Senator Stovall would do differently? Oh, it'd be noticeable from day one. I'd shut down every field office he had in the state of Texas and call the lieutenant governor and tell him to find me a closet or an unused office in the state capitol. I'd put one representative there. 
That's pretty good. Because, because <laughs> well, because the predominant uh, primary focus of that office is to do one thing, and that's to protect the best interests of the state of Texas. Yeah. So uh, the idea that you're going to you're going to perpetuate this ridiculous notion that if I have eight or nine offices across Texas, somehow 30 million Texans have access to me. Uh, 30 million Texans have access to me. That's ridiculous. And, and people know they don't. I mean, they call their offices just to just to kind of get something off their chest, you know. Right. And they're and they're done. You you can get your form letter back. You can call and talk to somebody. Or you can call and get an answer machine like you with John Cornyn a lot of time. But if you truly want to have influence over that office, we're going to have to change the dynamic. I was in uh, Fort Worth a few months back, and I asked a group of about 200 people. So, uh, the lady asked that question, but she asked it differently. It was the, that kind of general, so what makes you different? And I told them that I would upset them much faster than he would. <laughs> and and they, some of them laughed, and she said, I don't get it. And I said, I'll shut down every field office he had. And she said, you can't do that. We have to be able to communicate with you. And I said, wonderful. How's that working out for you? Wow. So I said, everybody in the room, show of hands. How many of you made a phone call to one of the field offices for John Cornyn and spoke to John Cornyn? Well, of course, none of you are going to raise your hand because they, they won't. How many of you ever called and got a hold of someone and it led to anything legitimized where you talked to John Corner or anything like that? No one raised their hand. I said, well, okay, I'm going to flip that. How many of you in this room have ever spoken to personally your, uh, about business, not about passing in a donor uh, meeting where you shake hands and get a picture? Now, I'm talking about that. How many of you ever spoken to your house representative? Well, they all raised their hands. I said, that's right. I said, how many of you know where their office is? They all raise their hands. How many of you can call up there and talk to someone and know you're going to get a call back from a human being, and maybe you get a chance to go in and schedule a meeting with them? They'll all raise their hands. I said, that's how this works. That's your representation. My job would be to represent the best interest of that pink dome in Austin as long as it was constitutional and in the best interest of Texas. So the way this works is that I would go office in the Capitol – I'd call a meeting of the body of the whole, get both chambers in there, I'd tell all 182 members you're on notice. I have you on speed dial. I have you on a, a basically an old school Rolodex and an email list and a text list, and I'm going to keep you informed of what's going on that affects Texas. And you're going to give your input because you can put 180 people in one room. Yep. So if you – and I'm going to guide all of my fellow Texans that if they have a problem with – Good, bad, or ugly, and different doesn't matter. They want to get messaging through to me. They're going to call you. And if I get 20 calls from you guys, I already know there's something. we got to bring that to the surface. Whatever that is, we need to deal with that. This is how it puts every single Texan one degree away from my office. That's, how you, that's the communication pecking order and how it's supposed to work, not how it works today, which is they're basically rogue Right. Uh, individuals they just do whatever it is they feel like and um it's it's not a hard concept to grasp i said that to about 200 people they totally got it by the time i left there so uh paul asks so, um sorry go ahead go ahead i was going to say if you want to know the mechanics of what i would do in office that's along the same lines but in, there's one question that I don't think Texans or anybody in any other state have ever been able to get the answer to that secures it in their bone marrow. 
I think we all kind of walk around with a little bit of hope that the federal government is somehow going to uh, um, give up some of its authority, stop encroaching on our lives, stop leaning on our states, start allowing states to live according to the will of their citizens. Mm-hmm. And we kind of hold out hope that there's going to be, you know, we're going to elect enough R's and that we're going to get it going that direction. Well, my goal is to answer that question in the first 30 days I'm in office. And I'm going to do that using the most divisive issue in our society today. And what's and that? that's abortion. I'm going to do that with abortion. Um, there is no authority in the federal constitution for the federal government to be involved in the issue of abortion. There is no authority for them to take our money and to fund the murder of children through an organization that sells their body parts after they kill them. There's no authority for them to mandate, dictate, or, or uh, require the citizens in all 50 states to allow legalized murder of children. There is no authority in that document. So I'm going to go to 99 other offices, and I'm going to pose the question the correct way through the authority that Article 3 gives us. And I'm going to say, hey, look, I'm going to offer a one-line piece of legislation. And I know some people laugh at that because that never happens. But I'm going to offer a one-line piece of legislation, and it's going to say, as of today, we remand the issue of abortion back to the states. We're going to remove any and all perceived jurisdiction from the federal judiciary over the issue. And I'm going to go to people like Bernie Sanders, and I'm going to say, Bernie, you're going to support this bill. Because you're gonna, I'm going to get you elected for the rest of your life in Vermont because you're going to go back to Vermont and you're going to tell your fellow citizens that you support this bill because you want the citizens of Vermont to manage this, this issue according to their will. And you want to make sure that nobody that looks like this Texan has any influence over how they manage this issue. Right. And I'm going to go back to Texas and I'm going to have an answer for my legislature. And I'm going to call them back together as soon as I've hit the 99th office. And I'm going to answer that question permanently. And finally, for my fellow Texans, I'm going to have two answers, one or the other. I'm going to say, folks, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And we have a simple majority of the Senate who are willing to give up some authority that they know they don't have the right to take and some force that they use on the states that they don't have the right to enforce. Or... And it's more likely, and I hate to say that, but it's more likely I'm going to come back and say, okay, I have proof beyond a shadow of a doubt. This is what I did. This is functionally how I did it. These are the answers I received, and I have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is not a single person in the federal government willing to give up one ounce of authority that they've taken over the last hundred years, and that they are never going to take the boot off the throat of Texans or the citizens in any other state. Now, what do you want me to do? Wow, I'm gonna drop it on them. That is, that is an approach approach that uh, um, I have never heard of, and that is definitely something that I personally I I really like that approach. That's not something that is normally stated. Uh, so <laughs> so Paul uh, Paul asked, "Are you going to actually listen and vote the way the people uh, uh, listen and vote the way the people that vote for you are?" Uh, what you think should be done, or are you going to 
do what we the people want and not the politician wants? Well, that's a broad scope. There's 30 million people in the state. Of, well, right at 30 million people in the state of Texas. We got over 16 million registered voters. Uh, I'm not going to answer to the will of every single individual voter. The right. purpose of this office is to do the will in the best interest of the state of Texas. There's a pecking order. Uh, when you look at a proposed bill, first, does it meet the criteria of the U.S. Constitution, which most of them don't, just letting you know. <laughs> the, se the second thing is, which most people leave out of the equation, if it meets the first criteria, which is the federal constitution, does it meet the criteria of the Texas Constitution? Most people kick that out of the sequence. But, folks, we have a constitution. We have a bill of rights. They're both meaningful. Once it gets beyond that, you look at one singularly overriding uh, issue, and that is, does it benefit or hurt the state of Texas? If the state legislature is behind it and it meets all the criteria and it does not do harm to the state of Texas, it's a go. Right. If it does harm to the state of Texas, but it helps for helps out 49 other states, it's a negative. Yeah. If the state legislature is asking me to do something that does not meet criteria one or two, then we got a whole discussion to have if it doesn't meet the criteria of number three, but it should. There's right. no way that a liberal, progressive-leaning uh, state legislature would ever get me to go along with something that violated one or two. And it would be very hard to see anything violating one or two that violated three. So it, it, is there a chance that it could put you at odds with your legislature? Possibly, but much of what this office brings to the table is the ability to articulate a discussion with Texans that they don't get. Absolutely. And, and if you have the ear... I'll put it to you this way. Uh, Professor Donald Livingston told me that if if you really want a society to change their their path or their status in life, you have to agitate them to their feet in mass. And the key factor in that formula is mass. It's not agitating to, the, to their feet. We are all – people are listening to you now. We all go to meetings for different groups, and we're all agitated to our feet in groups of 20 or 40 or whatever. But that's not mass. You can, when you have the ability to message a million, two million, five million Texans at once, and you can get the ear of truly liberty-minded, small government-minded, historically known independent thinking Texians, Tejanos, Hispanic te Texans here, and get them to understand we're kind of all in this together, and the, the target is really not each of us, the target is the federal government and their encroachment on our lives. Because a, a U.S. senator is not there to dictate. They're, mm -hmm. not, they're not there to, to they're not there to force you to be involved in anything you don't want to be involved in. They're, they're literally looking at the best interests of the, of the state. So you, the, the idea that we're not going to have disagreements in Texas, that's a, that's a misnomer, too. That's going to happen. But the, the larger question, anybody that's ever followed my campaign understands that my question to Texans is, who gets to manage Texas? It, it, and it's the larger issue of the discussion and the arguments. Outside of those limited authorities that the federal government is supposed to hold, who gets to manage Texas? Is it going to be among ourselves? We Texans kind of having this discourse and, and making decisions among ourselves, or are we simply going to abdicate that? over to some people who are non-Texan a thousand miles to our east and, 
and just say, okay, we'll just rule over us because that's where we're at now. Right. And, and if you believe in limited government, even in the slightest way, even if you're just a common sense oriented person, you, you know that it's better for us to manage our affairs here among ourselves than it is to let people we don't know out of our eyesight manage our affairs. So um, it's, it's a really simple construct. That's why, that's why my campaign will do so well in November because it, it's a bipartisan question. Right. I don't care where you're on the political spectrum. You are just dense. If you think you want people that you don't know thousands of miles away from you to rule over your life, right. I don't even know. I don't even know what to do for you. So when you get to that point. So here's a here's an interesting question, also from Paul. Uh, you were talking about how the the Constitution doesn't allow for the federal government to be involved in the issue of abortion in any way. Uh, and whenever it comes comes to to a lot of conservatives, they they really kind of hammer that home a lot, but then they kind of ignore it whenever it comes to another issue, whenever it comes to foreign aid. And Paul asks, says, he basically makes a statement, there's nothing in the Constitution saying that we support un other countries either. So how would Senator Stovall uh, address things such as foreign aid and, and spending, uh, uh, or I guess investing, quote unquote, in foreign countries or... Um, oh, don't don't use the word investing. Uh, that, was, that, was in that, was, that was in quotes. That was in quotes. We all know what it is. It's payola. Right. It's, not, it's worse than payola because it's like me taking your money out of your wallet with a gun to your head and then turn around going to somebody I don't know and saying, here, do what I want. And I'm going to use your money to do it. Look, <clears throat> the, the idea of, of foreign subsidy of any kind is completely illegal. We all know this. We ask ourselves over breakfast across the entire union every day, why do we give our money to these Middle Eastern countries? Why do we give our money to these foreign countries all over the globe? They're buying favor. They're buying control. This has a lot to do with our global presence as the world's police. You know, if we can't uh, put a gun to their head and tell them this is what you're going to do because we want you to, then we're going to pay them off and get them to make this. We'll pay off. We've proven beyond a shadow of a doubt we're willing to take taxpayer-funded money, dollars, right out of your pocket and go over and literally give it to terrorists in their hands one at a time at a table in Afghanistan to lower the level of violence. Just don't shoot at us for a while, and we're going to give you thousands of dollars each so that you guys can go party, and we'll start fighting with you again next month. So, this is where we're at. The, the idea that we're, we're going to subsidize these other countries is, is – uh, Ridiculous. Right. And usually, whenever conservatives are asked that, they, they bring up countries like Iran. It's all tied to, well, it's all tied to Israel. Right. And so how do you address... Uh, you, uh, well, they always leave out one little fact. What's that? Uh, one little data point, and that is that we give exponentially more money to the countries around Israel that want to do Israel harm than we give to Israel. That's true. Now, so there's there's no sanity involved in that either. Good Lord, if we're Israel's ally, what does that make us? Right. Um, Israel's got the biggest, baddest military on the planet over there, and we help them with that. They purchased from us. We're in a, a allied agreement with them or an allied relationship with them where we share technology and different things. They don't need our help. Historically, if 
if they were going to protect themselves in the late 80s, we condemn them for wanting to defend themselves. It's like we just want to keep them under our thumb. Mm-hmm. So my idea is it's it's not about whether or not you support Israel. It's whether or not you have a legal process or a, le- a, a, a legal right to take the money of U.S. citizens and give it to any country, any country. Israel, its its enemies, any country around planet Earth, they don't have that authority. Amen. They just don't have it. Amen. And you know that's a that's a tough question to really ask, uh, and even a tougher one to answer. But you know, when somebody's intellectually honest about well all of their positions, it becomes far less difficult to answer. You know, I. Oh yeah. You know, I'm somebody. Sales, absolutely. You know, I'm. Uh, you know, I, I'm a I'm a Jew, but. I'm also somebody that is, um, well, very uh, libertarian-minded, if you will. And whenever it comes to giving other people or other countries money, I don't understand or agree with the forcible taking of property from, from American citizens in order to redistribute it to a company to another person or to another country. To me, that is the very epitome of, of theft, and it's it's a money laundering scheme. Uh, well, we can go we can go Bastiat all day if you want. <laughs> um, okay, so let's let's get to the Second Amendment. Uh, we, you know, we're a we're a gun rights organization, and you know, I know that that you have a um, an event here coming up, so I want to I want to get your your take on. Gun rights, gun ownership, uh, the current laws at the federal level, um, and and all of that. What? How do you feel about the current state of the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution? I, I think as a society, we're kind of, we're kind of stuck on stupid when it comes to the Second Amendment. We are allowing the federal government to encroach on our right to bear arms in ways. Excuse me, and and we're allowing them to encroach. Let's stop right there. They have no authority, zero, none, to be involved in your right to bear arms. Not an ounce. They, when it says "Thou shalt not infringe," that word was chosen for a reason. It's the broadest possible term you can use. It doesn't have to do with the militia. It doesn't have to do with it. It's a broad term, meaning you're not to have a hearing about it. You're not to speak about it. You're not to have a committee about it. You're not to convene any kind of anything. You don't have any involvement in this at all. That's a prior existing right. It's none of your business. But we have been sold down a, a, a valley here. We're, we're, we're down the pipeline where we have all these federal regulatory means on gun ownership, sales, you name it, and none of it is legal, not one ounce of it. So I, I uh, the article that you guys put out yesterday or the day before about John Cornyn, John Cornyn doesn't have a principal thought one way or another on anything. And when it comes to the Second Amendment, he's totally open to negotiation and always has been. That's what's kind of amazing. Uh, anything that's ever happened of substance during his tenure, you can go back to Virginia when the, the, when the shooting happened in Virginia uh, and come forward. You can go use Sutherland or you can use El Paso. 
he was all about expanding encroachment on your right to bear arms uh, way back there. This fixed Nick stuff and, and coming forward with his uh, response act or whatever it is. These are politically motivated warm and fuzzies. This is a look at me. I'm, I'm worried about it. I, I care about you. Right. And I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to fix this. Well, the reality of it is he doesn't give a rip about anybody except himself. And he doesn't know the foggiest thing, first foggiest thing about the constitutional construct. He believes that he has the simple authority to rule over 330 million citizens across 50 sovereign states on how, when, or where they buy a, a, a gun or when they own it. And um, if that doesn't bring you your blood to a boil, I don't know what else will. I, I just don't. Well, that definitely this lights a they, fire under me. They need to be rejected at every possible statement. When they open their mouth up and say, oh, well, guns, no, be quiet. The bearing of arms, no, be quiet. That's out of sight of your purview. That's none of your business. So it's a, it's a very short discussion with me. I'd like to see uh any of that regulatory means that's been put in place over the years be rejected completely i've i've been against the national id and national registries as long as i can remember and and back when i didn't even understand the constructs of the government it just felt wrong i didn't i didn't need people i didn't know keeping a, a record on me and um i get into it sometimes with people who are because I've been in construction for so many years, and I get the I get the use of like, um, what's the um, what's the what's the the instrument we use for uh, checking their social security numbers, make sure they're valid citizens. Uh, oh, e-verify. Oh, e-verify. And I get into it too because I would be totally open to a T-verify, meaning a Texas e-verify, to put a buffer between Texas and the federal government so that we could call someone in texas they could do a blind search on who we're hiring and then we could bring these uh, employers to bear um here in texas without involving us in some kind of national unconstitutional program um guns are the same way i don't need the federal government being involved in anything that has to do with with uh me owning a gun ever and you can see now the handwriting's on the wall. They're trying to get down to just me and you trading guns as neighbors. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I mean, Dan Patrick's been push, pushing that since uh, El Paso uh, oh, and yeah. Odessa. because, And, you know, I think that what he's going to ultimately be pushing is that you have to have an LTC to, do, to engage in private sales. Um, uh, and ultimately, that's just, uh, that's just another one more... One more infringement on the books that, you know, yep. of the copious yep. 20,000, 30,000 across every state and at the federal level as well. It will always be by slow bake. They're always going to take it incrementally and each generation is going to pass and they're going to wake up a little more uh, acceptance of a little more encroachment until they're going to wake up one day and have a Supreme Court that, uh, that rules that banning guns nationally is perfectly legal. That's yeah. constitutional. Yeah, you know, uh, on that note, um, a lot of people that are pro-gun, they like to cite the Heller decision. And if you actually read the Heller decision, Scalia wrote some very awful things. Uh, the, there's a, another case called United States v. Miller from 1938, I believe, 
uh, where uh, a guy was criminally charged for uh, and convicted for possessing sawed-off shotguns and violating the National Firearms Act. And Scalia quoted a piece of the decision from that uh, that basically the ruling for Miller and justification for that was, oh, a sawed-off shotgun is not a military t- uh, is not a military weapon, therefore it's not protected by the Second Amendment. And Scalia took that and said, you can't read it that way because if you did, then that would make banning fully automatic weapons unconstitutional. So we can't read it that way. That's <laughs> right? in the Heller opinion yeah. that Scalia there's, wrote. There's two things you need to know about that. <clears throat> first is, excuse me, <clears throat> the first is, as much as I like some of the things Scalia did, Scalia was not an originalist. Scalia was a textualist. I believe he, I believe he coined that phrase, as a matter of fact. So that takes him away from the understanding or having to show a proof of understanding of the document, as Jefferson would call, as the friends of the document agreed to it. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a textualist, so he would take individual words. He went on the Sunday – you can find this on uh, YouTube – if you look at Scalia on his idea about Second Amendment and bearing of arms, Scalia literally said that, uh, well, you know, it says the bearing of arms, so it, it really only pertains to anything you can hold in your hand. So, you know, we're going to have to rule on that at some point. He said that. And I, I saw that. And I went, oh, you've got to be kidding me that you're even talking about this. But uh, as far as the Heller case goes, there's a very specific – finality to Heller that makes it totally constitutional and it makes it legitimate. And that is that that is in the district of Columbia. Yeah. So any and all jurisdiction over that 10 mile square in the constitution, which is detailed, um, it's there for you to read in the constitution. They have all authority over that, all of it. So they can do, they can rule any way they want there people lose track of is is that any ruling they had in, the, in Heller did not extend to any state. It was Heller. It was inside D.C. It belonged to them. They owned it. There was no application or extended interpretation of that ruling to apply to the states in any way. I think a more – the one thing that, uh, that probably gets people more riled up than anything, especially if you have – those of us, and I was this way until about 15 years ago, so I, I try to I try to see it their way and kind of bring them around the corner. It took me many years to grasp this. Um, it's very hard to people for people to understand that when a state writes a law that infringes on someone's right to bear arms, that somehow they are infringing on the Second Amendment. And a lot of people will quote, they'll go back to a most recent ruling back in 2012 or 11, which was the McDonald case. You guys have read, looked at the McDonald case, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that that was, a, a, for those that don't know, that was a private case. It was an older black gentleman in Chicago named Oscar McDonald. He wanted to have a pistol in his home for security. That was basically it. The people of Chicago had voted to ban guns. Uh, he didn't agree. It ended up getting leg- litigated, and it went through the um, Illinois judicial system all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court of Illinois ruled, and they said, Mr. McDonald, we're sorry, but uh, the people of Chicago have spoken, and they don't want to have guns. So if you want a gun, you're going to have to move to a 
an area where they allow it or you're going to have to move to Texas or Oklahoma or whatever. And you know what happened? Every conservative, liberty-oriented, guns-right organization in the, state of, uh, in the United States raised up in arms or uh, 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 screaming about it, and they got involved, and they pushed it out of the Illinois judicial uh, system, and they pushed it into the federal. And uh, the federal government, of course, the, the federal judges didn't say, oh, that's about guns. Oh, I'm sorry. We're restricted from having anything to do with that. They said, well, what's it about? Oh, we don't really care. We'll take it up. And they took it up, of course, because they take up everything. So uh, what happened in 2011 or 12 or so, maybe 2010, it's been recent, relatively recent, uh, federal judges ruled. And they came out and said, no, 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 because of what you said earlier, the 14th Amendment and a misapplication of that. The 14th Amendment says that we can apply the Federal Bill of Rights to the states, and uh, we've got the authority to do so, so Mr. McDonald can keep his gun because the Second Amendment protects his rights. So what happened? Every gun group in the United States, every conservative group or Second Amendment folks said, fantastic, that protects our rights. That's Second Amendment. Yay, Second Amendment. What they didn't grasp was is that that's the perfect vehicle. 20 years from now, because we live under stare decisis, folks. We live under case precedent. We don't live under the Constitution. You live under a body of judges' rulings. Get that through your head. So 20 years from now, there's going to be a piece of legislation brought. They're going to say, we need to ban guns nationally. And our great grandkids are going to get up and say, you can't do that. The Second Amendment. And they're going to go, oh, no, no, no. We've got the authority to do that. Remember McDonald's? Your grandparents gave us that authority. Yeah. And, and that's what's going to happen. And everybody's going to be dumbfounded. No, the Second Amendment. No, no, no. We've got control over that right. Remember? Mm-hmm. And, and people are scared to death of that. And it's almost this contradiction that you really have to sit people down and go, look, the Second Amendment is not your ultimate authority. You're, you are responsible for you. It's a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And if, if you give that authority over to nine unelected, well-connected lawyers to protect that right that you have by whether you're a believer like me and you believe that you have that right through your creator – or whether you're an atheist and you believe you have the right to self-defense in any way you see fit through your humanity and the fact that you exist, it doesn't matter. It's the same finish line. If you think that you're going to give the authority to protect that right to nine unelected, well-connected judges, then we're lost. Yeah, we're lost. You know, one of my one of my favorite quotes um, it comes from Thomas Jefferson, and uh, I. I I am absolutely obsessed with Jefferson. I consider him my spirit animal. Uh, but he wrote a letter to William Jarvis uh, in, I want to say, 1828. Uh, but it, they were talking about the Supreme Court. And this, you know, keep in mind, this is after Marbury in 1803. And right. uh, Jefferson said, and this is almost a verbatim quote, uh, he said, to consider the judges... Uh, the ultimate arbiters of all things, all, of all constitutional questions, is a very dangerous doctrine indeed, and one that will place us under the despotism of an oligarchy. And that's exactly what we have now. Like exactly. Hey, who, who, was, who was his uh, arch nemesis? Uh, well, at what point? Because he and Adams went at it for quite some time. At Adams, 
go back to uh, the folks on the other side of the fence from him, like uh, Hamilton. Oh, uh, Hamilton. Golly. What I hate Hamilton. Hamilton. What <laughs> What did Hamilton say about the Supreme Court? And he's the big government guy. Yeah. The lefties love him. He said any layman's reading of the of the document will show Constitution will show that the Supreme Court was the weakest of all the branches because they had no mechanism of self defense and no mechanism of enforcement. And he went on to say, but if at any time the Supreme Court, the judicial branch, ever coalesces with either the, the legislative or the executive or both everyone's liberty would be in danger. Mm-hmm. That, Buddy, that's where we're at. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, a, a, a little bit of what you were talking about earlier, uh, James has a, a little bit of criticism for you, and uh, I think that you can kind of clarify what, what your stance is on this. He says, despite the Tenth Amendment re- referencing constitutional prohibitions to the state's Stovall believes that only the federal government is restrained by the Second Amendment. He believes that the states are not restrained by it. He believes arms infringements at the state level are not unconstitutional. Just ask him, he'll tell you. He's right. But he's not. But it's not me. Mm-hmm. That's Madison. That's Madison, Mason, Randolph. That's every state delegation that agreed to the Bill of Rights amendments. He's not. I'm not disagreeing with with him, I'm just agreeing with them. Yeah. That it, what, what he's referring to is a modern interpretation of progressive judges who decided arbitrarily out of thin air that somehow the back to your 14th Amendment reference, somehow magically the 14th Amendment meant things that it had never meant in a half century prior, and they could use it to apply the Federal Bill of Rights to the states. If you believe that the Federal Bill of Rights supersedes everything in the states, then we just need to take the state constitutions and all 50 state bills of rights and throw them in the trash can and give the keys to our state capitals to the federal government. If you believe that every single state in this union is completely restricted by limitations that were placed on the federal government by the states at their request, and if you read the preamble to the Federal Bill of Rights, it will tell you. The Congress says, hey, folks, we know you put desire, you had desires to put further constraints on this new government, and look what we did. We did it. We did it. Further constraints or, or mis- misconstructions or abuses of its institution. They're talking about the federal government. They're not talking about the states. Now, look at Texas. We have Article 23 in our uh, – uh, Section 23 and Article 1 of our Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. What does it say? It so, says that we have the right to bear arms, and we're going to protect that. What is the last thing in there? But the legislature has the, the authority. The state has the right. That's that's right. The state reserves the right to regulate the wearing of those arms with a view toward safety. Well, guess what? I don't care what it says after a right to regulate. They got the right to regulate. We've been trying to get that language stripped from our state constitution for many years. So... Now, that does- I don't want to bust anybody's bubble, but you, if you believe in divested authority, you better get off the wagon of trying to get the federal government to protect your right to, to bear arms because they're not going to do it. And if you think government moves right at any point in time in history that it doesn't consistently move left, you're not paying attention. Now, you saying that doesn't mean that you support any gun control at the state level, right? I just said I've been trying to get them to strip that language out of our out of our state constitution for about a decade now. Okay, all right. I, I don't now. Now look, here's what you need to understand: it. 
got to learn, and I had to do this myself. People have got to learn to not mix philosophical ideals that we would all totally agree with with the physical, literal construct of the constitutional government we live under and who where the pecking order is. Right. They don't they don't have the authority to take your money and children with it, but they do it. Right. Okay. And, and we it's like we consistently ask them to do more and more, but they don't have the authority to do it. As if someday they're gonna wake up and protect your rights. They're not going to do that. No. Government it, government at its finest is inept. And uh they are also uh, incredibly corrupt, uh, and every government will be corrupt. And, you know, a lot of people misunderstand, uh, that, that do understand this about Jefferson, they misunderstand what he meant by it. But Jefferson said that the Constitution should be thrown out every 19 years, every years. generation, uh, yeah. because the new generation didn't, is, yeah. is being forced into a form of government that they didn't agree to. Now, when he says the Constitution, he's not talking about the Bill of Rights from a philosophical standpoint, he still believes in natural right. He still believes yeah. in Lockean principles. He believes that those rights should always be there. In fact, that was his biggest uh, criticism of the Constitution when he was in France in 1787 was that it lacked a Bill of Rights. Well, the idea that you're going to have an open discussion and dialogue on how best to manage these rights among yourselves was kind of his key centerpiece i um limited government is limited government and it has to do with what's closest to you mm -hmm. and and this notion and people don't like to hear this because truth is not very warm and fuzzy folks it's usually pretty painful but the fact of the matter is you cannot believe in limited government and then also believe that the supreme court should rule over things that it shouldn't rule over including your guns you, you, they don't work together what you are suffering from, same thing I suffered from, is this modern progressive collective identity crisis, which is we're all Americans. We're all in this United States. It's our country. We have one guiding principle. We have one guiding Supreme Court. They are the Supreme Court uh, arbiter of everything all the time, everywhere. And the states are just, you know, subordinate administrators of the federal will. And until you let go of that, and you start backing up and realizing, folks, we've got 30 million people in the state of Texas. That's 11 times more people than we're in all 13 states combined when they ratified the Constitution. That's, as almost, as, that's almost as many people as were in the entire United States when they fought the Civil War. If you think that we're all Americans and you share the same identity as someone from Connecticut, I got news for you. We're in Texas. We have exponentially more in common with the people of Mexico, culturally, historically, logistically, traditionally, than we ever will with the people of Vermont or Maine. Or this is just a it's just historical fact. Mm -hmm. So so stop trying to grow the government under the guise of protecting liberty. It doesn't work. One side is philosophical. The other side is anti-liberty. Absolutely. So, it's, it's a tough one, but when you get people to really back up and, and grab some logic and common sense and try to push back against what they've been saturated with from birth, that you're in this free country and you're represented and you've got this national government, the federal government. It's not federal anymore. It's national and it rules over every ounce of your life, but 
you know, they're our rulers and they get to dictate over how we're going to manage these issues. No, if the people in New York want to recognize, want to pass laws, look, I'll put it to you this way. If the people of New York want to elect their representation to go to their state capitol and write laws for them that so much as ban guns and only criminals can have them, good luck with that. But don't do that here in Texas. If the people of Connecticut want to write laws and say Adam can marry Steve, good luck with that. I don't care. I'm a Texan. You're a, you're a citizen of New York. You're a New Yorker. I want to respect your will to live your life according to your means. I don't need you trying to influence me down here. Right. Right now we live in a society that is literally trying to elect a king. They're looking for the king that's going to give them the judge. He's going to fix all their ills. Yep. And they're, they're really – it's just a huge paradigm of team effort that we just want to elect enough of our guys into offices of that tyrannical government so that we can force all 330 million people to live according to our will. Tyranny is still tyranny if you agree with it. That's not freedom, man. Yeah. That's not freedom. And, and this office I run for is a key component to changing the discourse level and getting people to kind of strip away this nonsense we've been fed for the for six generations now yeah i, I think it can happen i really do although that wouldn't be running for it well uh you know we've been going for over an hour here Dwayne, and i i really really am grateful for your time um is there anything else that you would like to to leave everybody with before we wrap this up uh yeah a couple of things one is i learned a lot about this race back in 2013 about how large it is and the power structure that you're running against. I want you to understand something. I walked away from there thinking that it was massive and that they controlled everything, but this time it's totally different. I, I see the extent to which messaging is controlled by the establishment in both parties. If you went back two years and looked at headlines of, of, uh, of John Cornyn, they would be all anti-Trump. It would be him speaking out against Trump, him speaking out against the wall, him speaking out against everything about the man. You can't find – it's consorted effort. You can't find those old articles hardly at all, and you can't find anything but a headline that says uh, he is Donald Trump's most ardent supporter. You can hardly go back and find anything about him being on Tucker Cross and saying Texas said they don't want a wall or anything like that. All of this – this marketing, the way they push society around, is very disturbing. I mean, it's just really disturbing. They have got such a great mechanism through uh, messaging, the way they control the, the marketing. And most of us are just trying to go to work, make a living, take care of their kids, and they don't want their heads stuck in this political ESPN for politics we have every day. So the, the messaging is so very important, and they control it, the vast majority of it. Of course, he's got $11 million in the bank. They come from his vested interest. Right. Um, we're never going to raise that kind of money. But as you said earlier, you'd never heard anything like this before, but you get it. It sticks. That's all I can tell you. It just, it really does. And um, it, it, we bank on that. That's how a guy like me steps out from behind his kitchen table and pulls almost 11% of a primary in Texas. It's because, you know, it's the truth of it's millions and millions of dollars to make a mule look like secretariat. <laughs> <laughs> but if, if anybody's interested in what I'm doing, if you've got any money at all, you cut loose of, we'll take it. I was the worst possible fundraiser in 2013 because it's, it's so dirty. 
But the fact of the matter is we got to have it. And if we don't have it, we're in trouble. Uh, we don't need all of it. We need some of it. It doesn't take nearly as much money to do what I'm doing. But if you can do that, that'd be great. If you can't, go to puttingtexasfirst.com, uh, create a profile, jump on the wagon. We've got about 1,400 volunteers. We'll probably have 2,000 by Thanksgiving. Uh, it's just a really great organic movement. Uh, but you can go to DwayneStoval.com, D-W-A-Y-N-E-S-T-O-V-A-L-L, and follow some more. Uh, if you have any questions, email us. Most of it comes directly to me. I don't have any problems corresponding with everybody. It gets a little tougher every day, but I try. Um, it's just, you know, it's all about Texas, man. If we don't start putting Texas first, we're we're dead in the water. Absolutely. So you want to know how? Here, here is evidence of how of just how organic you are, uh, James, the the guy that offered that criticism earlier that that you clarified. He says, while I disagree with his stance on the Second Amendment with regard to the states, I have to say that Stovall is consistent and unafraid to say exactly what he believes and then explain exactly why he believes it. I'll vote for him. So uh, I've seen a couple of comments rolling through of people that have uh, whose vote you have earned uh, just being here. Uh, so well, I appreciate that. Tell them to tell them to take a stiff upper lip when somebody starts mouthing off that doesn't know the background behind anything. Because there's a lot of people that want to twist messaging around mm -hmm. and say i'm perfectly fine for for gun restrictions in new york or something well i'm not <laughs> going to new york i don't really care oh, <laughs> hey by the way i don't know if you guys get into the uh, the federal they've been pushing federal uh reciprocity yeah. for years we've Dude, been never we've, we've never been opposed to that. that yeah we've been yeah, opposed yeah, to that because it's that. it's like it de it defines so much that it is just sweeping gr gun control whenever Democrats take over everything. At, no, like that that gives them national power on every aspect of your guns. Everything, like yeah, they would, yeah. they, they could seriously nullify a state's carry license and make it to where only a federal license is what's authorized to carry. And oh, it's the creep. It's the creep back into a national. Uh, registry of a particular gun to a particular individual with a particular style of permit down to a you can't have it and we'll restrict it down to the point where we're going to ban them and it's le legal. And yeah. by the way, anybody ever asked, the Supreme Court of the United States has but one obligation today, one job, and their job is to give legitimacy and constitutionality to completely illegitimate and unconstitutional acts by the federal government. That's their job. So at some point in time, we got to get somebody in the office that understands how to push back against them. Absolutely, and uh, you know, Dwayne, I I'm so grateful that you uh, you you came on here to speak, and uh, you know, best of luck to you in the election. I um, I will do my best to to try and uh, to try and get people your way as well. And hey, thanks a lot. Uh, you know, if you ever want to come back on, uh, even. After the elections, uh, you know, win, lose, draw, whatever, you will constantly have an open invitation anytime. Uh, all you got to do is uh, let me know, and and we'll make it happen. Thanks a lot, Derek. Everybody, just go out there and tell everybody you can, and stay stay uh, vigilant. All righty, I appreciate it, Derek. Thank you, Dwayne. Bye bye. Bye. All righty, guys, that's gonna do it for me. Uh, thank you so much for everything. Um, this was a great show. It really was. Dwayne is a great guy, and, you know, uh, we don't endorse any anybody here, but uh, he's definitely one to take a look at. I'll leave it at that. Uh, 
anyway, guys, we are, uh, if you guys can, join LSGR, uh, $6 a month, $60 for the year, and help us uh, restore our rights. Until next Sunday, arm yourself with knowledge and share the ammo. Thanks, guys.